Hey everyone, it's Caleb. Welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I'm so excited for you to be here with me today. Today I have a great guest, and my guest is D.L. Mayfield, who has recently released and authored the book called The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. And really looking forward to having this conversation. But before that, I'm just so glad that you decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me today. And, you know, on this podcast, The Learner's Corner, we want to create a safe place to have dangerous conversations, maybe the conversations that you're afraid to have uh, with other people for one reason or another. And on this podcast, we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, from anything and from everything. And that's why I'm so excited about this conversation that we're going to have with DL today. But before we get into that, I do want to let you know that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. And if you have any audio or video needs, be sure to hit him up. His Instagram handle is at sammassey 77 And without any further wait, we're just going to jump right into this conversation with DL Mayfield. Well, DL, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today, and I'm really excited to talk about your book, The Myth Behind the American Dream. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and just as we get started, I always love hearing people's stories about the work that they create, and whether that be a moment or a series of moments that happened that led to someone going, Hey, I I need to I need to get this out of me and put this out into the world. And so, just as we're getting started, I would love to hear your story about what made you want to write this book. Yeah, this is a really great question. I think that for me, you know, I I wrote my first book a few years ago called Assimilate or Go Home. That was sort of more my personal story of wanting to be a missionary, uh, working with refugees here in my city of Portland, Oregon, and how it really changed my life upside down and really caused me to think about my faith in a different way. And also my relationship to my neighbors and, you know, the injustice in my own country. Right. And so then after that book came out, it's like, Oh, what, what do I want to write next? And really the myth of the American dream is just sort of the culmination of things I've been thinking about for the past you know, five to 10 years and um, really trying to interrogate how strong certain values are within me that I think do come in conflict with uh, the desires of Jesus. And so trying to untangle that. And the thing that's extra hard for me is I was raised Christian, right? Christian from the moment I was born here in the U.S. My dad's a pastor. I was homeschooled, you know, uber, uber Christian and recognizing that some of these values that are at odds with what Jesus always talked about in the gospels are actually values that I also got from the church. It's not just American culture. It's the church, the white evangelical church sort of, you know, meshed together with some American dominant culture ideology. So I think that makes it extra hard to untangle uh, because I still really love Jesus, but I don't want um, to live into these desires that work really well for me, but then end up harming my neighbors because we live in a really unequal and unjust society. So that's kind of where the book came from. I will say the title is The Myth of the American Dream, which is like a really grandiose title. Mm-hmm. And that was just supposed to be the working title. And I kept being like, there's got to be somebody else who's written a book with that title. But then nobody did. And so um, I definitely feel like I'm not the most qualified person to write a, the book on The Myth of the American Dream. But I'm just trying to talk about some of the myths. And I'm sure we all 
uh, have had some of that tension in, in our lives, but yeah, I don't, I just think the title is really intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, before we get into the content of the book, I would love, uh, just to hear kind of what, um, kind of what your journey looked through or went through of, of reconciling, Hey, what, what I grew up with isn't necessarily what I believe right now. And I think we all experience that, that tension, um, across many different spectrums in all of our lives of realizing, Hey, you know what, maybe what my parents taught me isn't what I believe. And I think there comes like a moment of reckoning for all of us to where we start to realize that. And I was going to say, can you just take us back to that moment for you and, and some of just the emotions and how you had to deal and even maybe even, even grieve like some of the previous beliefs that you used to have? Yeah, I think you're right that deconstruction is just a normal part of getting older. And so I have heard a lot of chatter about people, um, you know, deconstructing some of their beliefs. And I feel like there's some of those that have been more wider talked about, like one of the most common ones for people, right. Is this the, um, exclusivity of evangelical theology when it comes to like hell. And, you know, so these are like normal pathways that people go down when they start to be like, huh, is it really, do I really believe what I believe for me? I would say it definitely, happened. And I I write more about this in my first book when it's like, what happens when what I've been told is good news only for me? So this is really specific to me, but I started working with non-literate refugees here in Portland. So they're people who had no access to education growing up. So they did not have a written alphabet at the time. And the way they interacted and learned and everything was so different from my literacy centric background. And I had been taught to be a missionary and to convert people, you know, through reading the Bible and through uh, reading about the four spiritual laws and giving an intellectual assent to Jesus. I'm like, oh my gosh, these people can't read. Like what, what are we going to do here? Right. And that's the first you know, little chink in my, uh, you know, iron, iron proof armor that everything I believe is perfect. It's like, well, Jesus loves people who can't read the Bible too. In fact, most of history, Christians have been people who don't read the Bible. So why is the Bible like the end all be all in in my world? So little things like that, I would say for uh, this book, the myth of the American dream, Uh, you know, it's kind of set into four sections talking about these values of affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. And for me, power is the one that has really, uh, caused me to rethink, wow, what was my childhood really teaching me? Because, uh, you know, there's a few different ways that people who consider themselves to be religious minorities in like a nation state can sort of orient themselves to power. And I grew up pretty fundamentalist, not like I only wore denim jumpers, but still like, I, I, you know, pretty darn, uh, you know, the homeschool thing. Um, but I, I never, I always thought we were just retreating from the world, right? Because we were just going to stay safe. We were going to stay Christian. We were going to do our own thing. But there's actually a different way that people can relate to power, which is called you retreat from the world, you shore up your resources, and then eventually you can, you come back and you take over power, even though you're in the minority. And I reckon, I realized just in the last few years, that's exactly what I had been trained to do. I thought we were just going to do sort of like the Benedict option and retreat and just stay in our little spaces and never do anything. But now I'm like, wow, looking at how especially white evangelicals have gotten involved politically for the past few decades, it's become clear we want power. And we think God wants us to have the power because we'll do the best with it. And so it's really tied up with 
uh, our beliefs in God and our beliefs that we uh, white evangelicals should be in power, even though we're the minority that I, I've had to really unpack and really grieve because um, I, I just don't see right now, like the Republican agenda taking care of so many of my neighbors and yet they loudly profess Christ. And so it's, it's been a really difficult time for me to recognize, Oh, I was supposed to take power this whole time. But when I look at Jesus, right, it's self-sacrificial neighbor love. That is the real power at the heart of God's kingdom. And that's what I want to tap more into. Um, yeah. And I'm still grieving that all the time. Yeah. I was going to say, can you just say a little bit more about that of, uh, of what the, what the grieving looks like, and yet you're not allowing that to stop you either. Yeah. Yeah. I am deaf. I'm just not an expert in this at all. I feel like, uh, even right now, it's just such an intense time with COVID-19 and, you know, I live in Portland, so there's so much going on in our own city of trying to advocate for true justice in our systems. Uh, and especially against police brutality against black people. Um, there's just a lot to grieve. And so my philosophy, I guess, for a little while has been, I really need to pay attention and try not to numb myself, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so, you know, some people use substances and some people honestly use religious platitudes, right? To just be like, everything will be okay. God's in control. You know, that's a way of numbing yourself from both the pain and the joy of the world. And I think God wants us to experience both. And whatever you use to numb, you numb yourself from pain, you're going to numb yourself from joy. And, uh, you know, joy is a part of the Christian life. So I don't want to numb myself from that. So what I, I try and do is I do try and grieve the bigger things going on. And then I really try and celebrate the small things that I can. Um, you know, I have two kids, so I really enjoy spending time with them. I'm definitely turning into an old lady. And like, I saw some hummingbirds the other day and I was like losing my mind and I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) but you know, I'm trying to lean into the joy and hummingbirds are really cool. So, you know, that sounds cliche, but I'm very interested in self-care as building resilience because I want to keep doing work of justice and peace and love for my whole life and less about numbing, which I think we all probably in a space where we're pretty tempted to numb out right now. One of the things that um, you write about in your book is you say how, uh, you know, for the American dream, it's it's somewhat composed of, you know, work hard and you'll achieve your dreams or you'll accomplish whatever you want. Um, but you talk about how that could be like a dangerous philosophy and how it's not even true as well. Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah, I think... Uh, for me, it's really important to point out, especially to people like myself. So growing up white evangelical, you know, sociologists have studied this um, and in, in their book, Divided by Faith, they really hone in on this where uh, white evangelicals, because of our theology and a few other backgrounds, we are so obsessed with individualism. It's really hard for us to see systems. So like if there is uh, an incident of racism, right? We're like, well, that was one person being racist. It's not like a system that's racist, right? So that's how I grew up. So for me, it was really important to show how the myth of the American dream, which, you know, is basically like you can come here, you work really hard and you'll be rewarded for your hard work, right? Um, The thing that's hard about that is if you come from a more privileged background, if you're part of the dominant culture, 
uh, that is probably going to be true for you. Not always, but it, it might be true for you. And then that would cause you to be like, yes, this must be true for everybody because it worked for me. So it makes you feel really good about yourself. And then it also makes you not want to question that system because it worked for you. The other side that I don't think we talk about often enough is if it works for you, then it allows you to judge those for whom it doesn't work, right? And so for many, many people in the United States, uh, there's so many barriers to them flourishing. And there's barriers set up into our constitution, into our immigration laws, into our housing contracts, into how our public schools are funded and set up. I mean, the list goes on and on. And once you start to notice that this is not a level and fair playing field, it, it can feel so overwhelming. But Again, many people choose to not pay attention to those things and instead just say, this worked for me. If it didn't work for you, there's something wrong with you. And then you get to heap shame and judgment on somebody who's already experienced a ton of system, you know, systemic barriers right, to flourishing. So it just heaps pain on those who are already what we would call disenfranchised. right? They are unable to access the same resources and power because of a system. And I, I just find that like... I would say almost evil, right? Believing in this nice myth makes you feel better. And then it allows you to judge people that we should actually be working harder to say, wow, there's some real reasons why they're not able to access the same things I have. Mm -hmm. And as I was uh, just preparing for our conversation today, I was, I was listening to an interview that you had done uh, previously. And and you said uh, that proximity isn't necessarily just the solution. And and I heard that and I, and I was a little bit taken back because that's what I've heard a lot of like, hey, you know what, you just got to surround yourself with people who, who look different than you and it'll change everything. But no, you said that it's proxi- proximity without changing pyre- power dynamics has the opposite effect on it. Yeah, it can. I mean, for, I do love proximity. I mean, that's my life story, right? I moved mm-hmm. in and have lived in these mostly immigrant and refugee communities in the United States for the past 15 years. And I love it. It's like an incredible space to be. And it really has caused me to think through some things. However, you know, my current neighborhood now on the outskirts of Portland is a really great example of how proximity alone doesn't change anything. And it actually can exacerbate tensions that are already there if there is like no recognition and discussion of these power dynamics. So my neighborhood has a lot of older white people who moved out here to kind of escape the weirdness of Portland. Now with Portland's housing crisis, you know, people looking for apartments and affordable apartments, they've been pushed all the way out here. And so we have all these huge apartment complexes bursting with low, lower income families, many of our people of color. And yeah, there's huge tensions out here. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, more and more white people fl- flying Confederate flags, you know, in Portland, Oregon, it's just like, that's a sign of racial terror. That's not a sign of whatever you think it is. I mean, they know that. And uh, lots of people, you know, having uh, guns and displaying prominently on their houses, like we don't call 911 with a picture of a gun and just all this stuff about protecting property from those people. And, and so it's obvious to me that the proximity doesn't work. You know, I have a lot of friends who are Muslim and uh, Muslim women in particular can be really vulnerable because they wear a hijab or a head covering. And so I've had friends as they're walking back from English class, like they've been spat on by men in trucks, like in their neighborhood here in the United States. And and so I think we need to recognize that 
you know, wishing proximity solved everything is sort of like the dominant culture dream, <laughs> right? Because people like myself would love to say, if I just move into the neighborhood, I'll fix everything. It'll, it'll work. It's like, no, we might have to sacrifice and we might have to give up some of our power. Uh, and we have to truly, uh, you know, this is my, this is my belief, right? If we want a more equitable world, if I want my neighborhood to be a place of flourishing, I do not need to sit down and have a conversation with the people flying Confederate flags to see what their dream for a flourishing neighborhood would be. I actually already know what their dream is because I've, I've grown up in that world. What I need to do is I need to sit down with the, my friends who are women, who have, uh, you know, who are Muslim, who've been discriminated against. I need to sit down and ask them, what does your flourishing neighborhood look like? And so for me, that's kind of where I'm at in these whole power dynamics. And it includes listening to, prioritizing the needs and letting people who have been disenfranchised lead the way in designing and implementing these more equitable uh, neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to follow up on something that you had mentioned earlier. You talked about your components of the the myth that, or sorry, you talked about the components of what makes up the myth of the American dream. And you mentioned autonomy, power, affluence, and safety. And I don't want to get into all the examples that you list in the book, but can you just list maybe one example for each of, hey, this is, this is what this looks like, like today? Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can help me because sometimes I do get a little, you know, my brain is like in different spaces yeah. now. So, so I might even list something that's not even in the book. But for me, starting off talking about affluence was important because, again, it, in, it engages this in a systematic way instead of just an individual way. And I do talk about like, uh, you know, popular Christian sort of financial gurus and, and how they talk about what we need to do as good Christians with our money, right? And you need to save and you need to like have no debt and you need to do all that stuff. Like, that's fine. But I, I really feel like we have absorbed this idea that if you're not doing well financially, like you're doing something wrong and maybe God is mad at you or you're not obeying God well. And I'm like, that's just so weird. Jesus said over and over again, blessed are the poor. And I, I think he meant it. And many of my friends, you know, who come from more collectivist cultures, who come from more poverty cultures, like they do not save their money. Uh, the second somebody asks them for help, they give their money away. And they just have a much more free approach to money. And I've been really struck by how not generous I am. Um, and this partly comes from my Christian, uh, good citizen upbringing, right? And so it's been really challenging to say, wow, the way I view money is God loves it when we save a lot and uh, pay down our mortgage. When really I'm like, what is this? What does scripture say, right? Like, it's all about, you need to give to those who are needed. My neighbors have really modeled that for me. So, so that's something from affluence. And then autonomy kind of goes into that a little bit, just this drive to say we are kind of responsible just for ourselves and for our own family. I really think this idolization of the nuclear family really plays into this idea of individualism and and who are we supposed to really prioritize? And it's just us and our family. And I just think, again, looking at these collectivist cultures, there's so much they have to teach us here in the United States. And I would say Right now, again, this idea of uh, wearing a mask for public safety, we've just seen this blow up. And in the book, I'm like, Americans from the dominant culture do not have a framework to, to view the common good as a part of their responsibility. And we are seeing this right now with face masks. Like, 
We literally, as a country, do not have the capacity to say, I need to suffer a tiny bit, which if you think wearing a face mask is suffering, then your life maybe has been pretty awesome. I don't know. Um, but we, we don't even have a framework to say, I can do that in order to help the collective good. And the thing that's, I think the grief in my book is saying like, this is coming from the church. Churches are actually, not all of them, and I probably they're in the minority, but there's a lot of churches out there who say, we don't want to wear masks. We want to meet and gather regardless of what the government says. This is persecution. And again, I'm like, oh my gosh, if this feels like persecution to you, oh wow. You, maybe, maybe you haven't had very much in your life. Um, coming from, you know, my friends who have been persecuted for their religious beliefs. And then safety, I, I really tried to focus that section on how we tend to sort of focus on illogical fears and, and not even illogical, maybe that's not the right word, but uh, in a country that's a little bit obsessed with nationalism uh, and all that, we really tend to focus our fears on the other and politicians have really capitalized on that. So I was really trying to talk about our immigration policies and how uh, we we kind of cloak our anti-immigrant leanings in this guise of like, well, we just want to keep ourselves safe. And um, again, that's not a biblical concept. In fact, the Bible really prioritizes, um, you know, reaching out to the foreigner in your midst, to the orphan and to the widow, those who have been really, who are really vulnerable in our economic system. And and so as I was writing, I was really grieving uh, basically the death of the U.S. refugee resettlement system, which has obviously altered my life for the past 15 years, allowing me to meet neighbors, to teach English to them, all this stuff. And it's basically over. Um, due to policies enacted since 2016. And I'm really grieving that. And, you know, even if we had some policy changes, the, this historic human rights program, the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program, it will, not, it will not be coming back for at least a decade. I mean, just because the infrastructure has been wiped out. So that's really what I was talking about there. I think now in COVID-19 times, the discussion about safety, right, is, is a little different, um, but it's still there. And then the last section is, like I said, about power. And I think one of the things that keeps sticking out to me is I went back and I bought some of my old high school history textbooks on eBay uh, through Christian curriculum and reread them and was really horrified to find these themes that are grieving me now currently, like in our national discussion, we're all uh, in these books uh, from the beginning. And yeah, it's just an interesting awakening for me to be like, wow, I've been I've been being taught this since I was a really, a, a really little kid. So I shouldn't be surprised, but yet sometimes I still am. Yeah. What are, what are some, I don't know if they would be gauges or what are some ways that, that maybe help you identify, Hey, I think I might be, I think I might be uh, mistakenly aligning Christianity with American values. Oh, that's a great question. I wonder if you have anything to say for that, because for me, there's so many little things and I am approaching this book as a writer, like a creative writer. That's how I like to write. I, I think I, there's many people who would be better able to talk about this in different ways. But for me, it really comes down to, I need to try and have more curiosity about how our world is set up and how my community is set up. And I need to try and pay attention to uh, injustice and inequality when I see it. And so for me, uh, again, coming back to some of those religious platitudes, I feel like in some ways I have been really taught to not be curious about power dynamics or systems or 
why somebody might be suffering uh, beyond like their individual choices. So for me, it's really been this dominant, dominant culture narrative kind of says like, it is the way it is. Don't look too hard into it. Believe your beliefs, you know, capital T truth, whatever. And I'm like, what's the harm in trying to be curious? I, I feel like that's how the Holy Spirit has worked in my life and hiding behind, like, I just believe in absolutes or, you know, I read the Bible and I do it and that settles it. It's like, okay, well, I think the Holy Spirit allows for some creativity for us to say, what is Jesus asking me to do in my life right this second? So I am trying to cultivate curiosity in myself because I am someone who comes from the dominant culture and my husband's a therapist. He talks to me about this a lot. Uh, We're going to have some shame responses, right? When we sort of unearth some of this stuff. And so I think curiosity and trying to pay attention helps me move through the shame and start to say, uh, I'm not like a horrible person just because I've benefited from some of this stuff. Uh, However, I'm not the one who's going to change it all, make it all better. I'm just one tiny little person in God's kingdom at work. And so it can take the pressure off. It can take the shame off. And then I think it helps us move forward to saying, we're just all tiny parts of God's dream for the world. And we get to be a part of this beautiful global vision. And that's what keeps me going. You know, it's not like it's on me to save it all, but I get to be a part of something much bigger than myself. And that's really great. Yeah. Can you talk to me more about what the, what your curiosity journey has looked like? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, again, I think writing really helps me. I didn't start writing until I had my first child. I was just like such a classic busybody, do-gooder, doing English classes, working three jobs, you know, all that stuff. And it wasn't until I was able, I had a, a daughter like two months early. And so I couldn't leave the house we didn't leave the house for like six months because she was so tidy and I had all this stuff. And I just started processing what I had actually been thinking and feeling. And so for me, curiosity really means you have to step outside of sort of this like tyranny of productivity or of thinking through things all the time and really start to be honest about what you're feeling. And it's been great because, you know, growing up Christian, it's like, what does it even mean to pray? Like sometimes I have flashbacks to youth group and and like when you would pray in public and how nerve wracking that was because you want to try and pray this like amazing prayer that would like impress people. I don't know. This is just like me, right? Um, oh, I, I think we've all been there before. Okay. So I still have some of that anxiety. And now I'm like, what is prayer? Prayer is just being honest with God. And so that's what I want to do. And most of my prayers are just like, God, I'm so annoyed. I'm so annoyed. Like what is happening? You know, it would not impress anybody at youth group, but like, what do I actually want? I want to have an actual conversation with God. And so I have to be honest. And so I think a lot of us, if you grow up in a background that is a little bit more all about those bounded sets, like here's what's appropriate to think and do and watch and read and everything out there is not right. That's how I grew up. So it can be kind of scary to be honest, to say like, well, I actually like this book that my mom told me was terrible, which is Harry Potter, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, but how can I, how, how can I just say, I, I need to be honest with God about what's going on. And that really has helped me. And it's had, um, you know, some, some wide ranging effects. I will say, you know, I'm just like everybody else right now. I'm super overwhelmed with the news coming out of the world. And so how do we cultivate curiosity? when the news is overwhelmingly bad. I live in Portland, Oregon, and there's so much going on with the protests downtown and 
you know, I've been involved in them in some ways, but it's really confusing. And there's no like one right thing to do. And there's no one right response to have. And, and I feel like that makes me feel anxious sometimes. And I'm trying to lean into the fact that this is a movement towards justice. This is a confusing times. I live in Portland, Oregon, which is sort of the home of like white progressives who chant Black Lives Matter and yet don't actually prioritize, you know, minorities in any policies whatsoever. So yeah, it's going to be confusing. And so for me, just trying to have curiosity, paying attention to like my own shame, my own desire for just a clear cut path of just saying, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but I trust that God is going to show me each day what, what to do to show up and be a part of this. Mm -hmm. You know, just as uh, we were talking beforehand, you mentioned that that there's some, like a lot has changed in the world since you've written the book and sent it to the publisher and everything. And I mean, you even talked about that a little bit with, uh, with the face masks as well. Um, What, if you could go back and add something to it, what would, what would you want to include or say, oh man, I wish I could, I could add this to the revision. Yeah, I mean, I I think I've been on a journey of understanding uh, conspiratorial thinking and how it shows up in certain cultures, and I I see that a lot in white evangelicalism. And I grew up with a lot of uh, conspiracy theories, and I, like most people, love a good conspiracy theory. So this is not just something about my background, but again, what gets really awful is when you add God into the mix, and that's why I'm always writing to Christians because I'm like. Everybody has issues with power. Everybody has issues with conspiratorial thinking. Everybody has issues with prejudice and, you know, dominant cultures have issues with racism. What gets really, really horrible is when you baptize all of that with God and God's blessing. And so that's kind of why I tend to keep focusing on writing to Christians because it's just, it's an added element and it really grieves me. Um, So yeah, I would write about conspiratorial thinking and, and probably more this like, uh, public health. I mean, in the book, I wrote a little bit about vaccines, but now I would have this whole uh, face mask thing to to contend with. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about uh, the the conspiracy theory part? Because that really, um, I would just love to learn what what have you learned through just investigating that. Yeah, I did. I have a podcast with my husband, and it started out as a joke, sort of like we we talk about old Adventures and Odyssey episodes and kind of. Uh, talk about like the good and the bad. And he's like a huge Adventures and Odyssey nerd. I don't know if any of your listeners even know what that show is. Oh, uh, and I, I'm just, I know what you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Mr. Whitaker. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I came up with a term called the Witsplain, how Mr. Whitaker always explained things away. Anyways, I don't like them that much. Should we have this podcast? Our last season we did, it wasn't about Adventures and Odyssey. It was about Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness. And it was like this bestseller book within again, conservative white evangelicals in the United States. And it's all about demons and, you know, all this stuff. So through that, I was able to talk to some people who were more experts on conspiratorial thinking. And really what it comes down to is conspiracy theories are a way for us to sort of engage in really complex and really scary subjects, but with like a very uh, narrow and defined way for us to say, this is what's actually happening. And it kind of absolves yourself from having to get engaged and actually work towards a different uh past so like frank peretti right it's demons at work it's not like a corrupt police system or uh people uh, you know pastors abusing their power or uh men who abuse their children right none of that none of that it's 
just demons, right? Demons because somebody uh, prayed a wicked prayer, whatever. And I see some real parallels to say, uh, you know, the satanic panic in the nineties, right? Where all this stuff about there's all these daycares and all these babies, there's all these schools, they're like satanic ritually abusing kids. When really what happened is in the nineties was when like x-rays and, and all these things had really come into play as far as medical practices and, and, uh, medical practitioners were starting to say like, there's so many kids that have been abused. What's going on here? And really we just had the tools to really see how many kids are being abused in their own homes. But instead of dealing with that, our collective culture said, no, it's got to be these satanic ritual abuse things going on. And so for me, you know, we can see that right now. I, I don't even know much about Q, QAnon or whatever that is, but mm-hmm. I mean, you can, it's just the same framework. Like let's engage in this wild Thing that maybe is based a little bit on truth, but then let's turn it into this whole thing that I actually have no responsibility involved in that, right? Um, because really what we need to be talking about is, yes, government is corrupt, right? There's corrupt stuff in it. How could we be working towards shalom for everybody? But instead we focus on, oh my gosh, there's this whole ring of pedophiles in Hollywood or whatever it is that makes us feel better to say, I don't have anything to do with that. Um, And I don't, you don't need my long-term engagement to change that. Let me just be squawking about how bad that thing is, right? And so psychologically, it just releases a lot of pressure when we can say it's all that and it has nothing to do with me. Um, But it it just always has like dire consequences for the people who are actually suffering the most, right? If you focus on these conspiracy theories instead of what's actually going on around you. And there's enough terrible stuff actually going on. You know, I kind of feel like that's where we should be focusing. How how can you identify if hey I'm I might be believing a conspiracy theory? Um, I don't know. I think that for one thing, uh, like like what with what happened with the satanic panic thing is really interesting because there were people involved who really were experts on child sexual abuse, and so they were really invested in like we don't want a ton of kids experiencing abuse. And so their whole thing was like, you would need more proof to be perfectly honest. Like you just need more proof, especially. So the wider spread something is supposedly to be the more proof you would need. And so, uh, you know, if you are thinking about like, wow, this thing is really interesting. If it's all of government or all of Hollywood, there's a pretty good chance that's not true, right? You would, there would just be so much more proof. And again, I'm not somebody who's like, please believe everything the government says. Please believe everything. I'm not that person at all. But the bigger the conspiracy is supposed to be, you know, the more proof there needs to be. And I just think, uh, based on the COVID-19 thing, I don't think our government is clever enough to pull off some of these conspiracies, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Um, Just just as we're getting ready to uh, wrap up, What's what's at stake if we refuse to deal with the reality of the myth of the American dream that you've been writing about? Okay, well, how honest do you want me to be here? I want your complete honesty. Oh, because for me, again, I'm talking from my position in this community. I'm writing to my community. And the thing that has already been damaged so much is 
the work and witness of Christ. And I just need to sit with that, right? And not not Jesus himself, right? Jesus in the gospels, Jesus at work in the world today. Um, that's something different from people professing to be Christ's followers and yet being known, I would say now globally, right? For pursuing power, for pursuing anti-immigration policies, for pursuing this absolute lust for individual rights versus the common good. Um, it, it's, it, I don't even know what to say sometimes. I just feel like dominant culture Christianity in the United States has tarnished its witness. And I don't think there's even like a, we can reclaim it. So that's the depressing part. Okay. The hopeful part is thank goodness the church of Jesus Christ is bigger than white evangelicals in the United States. Right. And we get to learn from all these amazing thriving communities of Christ followers in our own country, in our own cities and around the world. And we get to be learners. We get to say, guess what? We're not the pinnacle of God's work in the world, which is a belief that many people have, even though they don't want to say it. That's, that's probably the biggest myth of the American dream I would really like to unearth is that white Protestants in the United States are the pinnacle of God's work in the world. That's not true. Thank goodness. Um, and we get to even, and right now it's kind of an exciting time, right? Even if we're all stuck in our own homes, we have access to social media. We have access to books. You can actually be learning from people who have not been prioritized in our churches or in our, you know, curriculums at our Bible colleges, you could be learning right now. And it's very exciting. Um, to me, it doesn't feel threatening. It feels exciting, but you know, some people might have to go through that journey a little bit. Mm-hmm. For the person who's listening and they're like, okay, wh- where do I start? What's a good first step for people? Yeah. I say, take advantage of this time. And say, how can I learn from other perspectives of Christ followers that differ from my own? And, you know, I always get really nervous if people ask for like certain books to read and all that, because I'm like, I'm going to leave out so many good people. I I don't want to do that. And so for you, I would just say, um, you know, no matter where you are, you can pay attention to what you choose to focus on as far as social media, and you can try and branch out a little bit. There's, right now we truly are in just this golden age of, I would say, Christians publishing books from non-dominant culture perspectives. And so just start to explore. I've been really excited to see some some folks I've been following for a really long time on social media. Like their books are now like New York Times bestsellers because of the cultural moment we're in and people are hungry. And I'm like, this is incredible. Right now, I just read um, Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's like a fire hose of history. Plus he knows, I mean, he, he knows so much about Christian history, which you don't often find that with historians. So he's incredible. Um, you know, Lisa Sharon Harper's book, the very good gospel, I think is a book I've reread like five times. It's really accessible and yet really good theology to start to say, what does God's good news actually look like? And that's probably the piece that people like myself really need some help building up. So those would be the two books off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, follow people that make you kind of uncomfortable <laughs> on social yeah. media. That's what yeah. I would say. Well, DL, I know people are going to want to continue to learn from you and pick up your book, The Myth of the American Dream. Where's the best place for people to go to find the book to continue to learn from you? Yeah, it's, <laughs> excuse me. Um, you can, I don't know where to find the book. Like you can obviously find it online. 
you could always request it from your library. I'm like a huge library nerd. So if you want to do that, that always makes my heart happy. I do have a website, DL Mayfield. I'm I'm somewhat active on Twitter as DL Mayfield and, and Instagram. And uh, yeah, if anybody likes weird evangelical stuff, they can listen to our podcast, which is the Prophetic Imagination Station. And you can find that wherever you get your podcast. And our next season is on the Chronicles of Narnia. So there we go. There we go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. DL, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And just thank you again just so much for all the work that you're doing throughout all of this as well. And just wanting to share where you're learning with with as many people as possible. And thank you for listening as well. You know, here on the Learner's Corner, we want to create a safe place to have dangerous conversations. And on this podcast, we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything. And if you have uh, someone that you think would be interesting uh, for me to talk with, or if you have a topic that you would love uh, talked about on here, feel free to reach out to me on my Instagram, which is at Caleb J. Mason. And I would love to talk with you. I'd love to hear from you and just learn from you as well. And just some of the people that you're learning from and some of the things that you're learning as well. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Kayla Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.